Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. I was always conflicted and struggling. Um, I remember when I was a child, I I was always drawing and painting, and I for a long time I thought I wanted to grow up and be a cartoonist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in that book, as well as some artists I love and admire. And today, I am very excited to have Juliana Hatfield on the show. She's been one of my absolute favorite artists since I first heard the Blake Babies album Earwig back in the early 90s. Since then, she's consistently put out great albums and been extremely prolific, releasing almost 20 albums in addition to collaborations with Paul Westerberg, Matthew Cause, Evan Dando, and others. Her most recent, out November 17th, is Juliana Hatfield Sings ELO, a continuation of her series of tribute albums that have featured Olivia Newton-John and The Police. Today, Juliana talks about her career and how the politics of the music business led her to almost quit entirely, and how that journey led her to go back to school to try to get an MFA in fine arts. It's kind of an odd, like, stepping away from my career moment. I wanted to talk about when I applied and got in and went to uh, a year of art school and when I was um, 44 and the reasons for it and, and what I was hoping it would do for me and things like that and its relation to my uh, undergraduate music school and all kinds of stuff. I'll go back to after I graduated from high school, I... I was I was really shy person, path, almost kind of pathologically shy. I was um, socially very uncomfortable, insecure, um, and I I went to I applied to a bunch of colleges. I I applied to some Ivy League schools. I didn't get into any of them. I got into Boston University. I was living in Boston, and so I went to BU, Boston University. My father wanted me to get a degree. And he said he would pay for my college if I would go all the way and get a degree. 
he just wanted me to have that as a as a um basic building block in my life or something like that he thought no both of my parents were allowing me to do what I wanted they they never discouraged me not to do music so my father just wanted me to get an education somewhere so I I got into BU not really knowing what I was going to do all I really wanted to do at that point was join a band I wanted to sing and play in a band and write my songs but I was really shy I didn't know how to get into a band so I figured I'll go to BU I'll start a liberal arts program I'll you know I'll learn some stuff and maybe I'll meet people to play in a band with but I didn't really meet anyone I had I, I had kind of one friend but he wasn't a musician. And um, I was really, really miserable for that one semester, the first semester at BU. And I, I almost got to the point where I was starting to feel like almost on the precipice of feeling suicidal because I was so desperate to play music in a band and I didn't know I didn't know how to make it happen. I just didn't. So my next thought was like, I got to get out of here and I, I got to go to Berkeley College of Music because at least there, there will be other musicians and I'll be in a place with more more probability that I would find a band to play in. So I applied to Berkeley as a piano student because I had studied piano all of my life up until that point. And I was accepted. I transferred from BU to Berkeley for the second semester of that school year and I started. I got into Berkeley and I feel like I kind of cheated the system because at that point I was really over playing piano. I was burned out on it. I wasn't interested in playing piano anymore. I wanted to sing and play guitar in a band. And I, but I was very much a beginner with electric guitar and I had had no vocal training. So I got into Berkeley. I started the um, started studying jazz piano, which I'd never done. I'd always, I'd been playing Schumann and Beethoven and Brahms and stuff. So I learned how to comp on a keyboard, which is improvising from written letter written chords, like um, without all the notes laid out in front of you. You learn how to choose voicings of chords and as you go. This is not really important to the story at all. But so I had learned a little bit of stuff at Berkeley. I was in there as a piano student. And then as soon as I could, I transferred over to the vocal department and I came became... Uh, the voice became my principal instrument is what they call it, quote unquote, principal instrument. And then I began intensive vocal training to learn how to strengthen my voice and how to use it in different ways. But the most important thing that happened to me at Berkeley was that one night I was in my little dorm room and I, there was a knock at my door and it was these two really interesting looking people that I had noticed. It was a couple. It was a, a girl and a guy. And I'd seen the guy around school with with her, and they were together. They were a couple, and it was John Strom and Frida Love, who became my bandmates in the Blake Babies. And they they just they knocked on my door and asked me if I wanted to. They asked me if I wanted to jam with them. They lived in a little apartment around the corner, and it really was like they were like my um my saviors, really, because I was just so miserable and desperate to be in a band. And they just walked to my door and they made my dreams come true. And so that was the beginning of the Blake Babies. The Blake Babies released their first record, Nicely Nicely, in 1987. 
Mammoth Records released their breakthrough, Earwig, in 1989, and the now-classic Sunburn was released in 1990. These records really continued in the tradition of R.E.M. and other college radio bands and helped form what would become the indie rock boom of the 1990s. If you haven't listened to these records in a while, the songs are still as great now as they were then. So then I ended up completing my four years at Berkeley and getting my degree, which my father wanted me to do. And I think back then Berkeley was probably like $6,000 a year or something. And now it's probably like 36,000 thing, things have really changed. But um, at any rate, I got my degree, which was kind of useless because I was playing in a band and the degree didn't really help us in any way. John Strom dropped out of Berkeley. Like, a lot of the people do when they start gigging you know they when they when you start gigging that's kind of the the goal a musician wants to work and so if you start gigging you don't really need college anymore unless you're gonna go into teaching or something or getting really deeper into your whatever you're working on writing or something so so my quote-unquote career started and the Blake babies made a couple records and we toured and then we broke up a few years later. The Blake Babies was a wonderful and and intense time for me, but then we broke up around 90, 1990 or 91 maybe. And then I went solo. That's what they call it. I went solo, which just meant that I was going to be out there and I was going to have to find people to play with me since John and Frida were gone. And I was really terrified, so scared, because I I was alone now and I didn't have my gang of John and Frida. And I was still pathologically insecure and shy, but I just had this unrelenting obsession with making music and taking it other places you know and just pursuing that i made an album called hey babe for the same record label that had signed the blake babies this label called mammoth records out of north carolina a new small label so they retained the leaving member clause meant that they i was still signed to Mammoth when I broke up the band, when the band broke up. I wrestled some friends together and they helped me record Hey Babe that came out and it did it did well. It led it led to Mammoth selling me to Atlantic Records. And then I formed the Juliana Hatfield Three, me and Teen Fisher and Todd Phillips, and we made this record called Become What You Are for Atlantic, and that did better than Hey Babe did. Well, I'm saying better in quotes because I'm not saying it was a better album. It just sold more and um, it was more commercially successful. And I and then all this attention started coming my way. Um, we had a 
video for the single my sister was in the buzz bin on mtv which meant the heavy rotation videos and i was getting there were tons of press and a lot of attention on me i was doing these photo shoots and throughout all of that i was just increasingly more uncomfortable with the attention and i didn't really know how to deal with it gracefully or functionally i just was like did i did not have the skill the social skills i didn't have the proper need for attention to be able to handle all the press and the image making that people were doing to me because i didn't really have any concept of my own image so and these were all these were all things that i had never thought of when i started making music i never thought how will i present myself to the public in photographs and how will I explain myself? What, what will I, who will I be? What do I want to show people? All I had was my music and that's all that I knew. I was trying, I was, and even that I was still trying to master it. I was, I had a lot of insecurities and did not have a lot of confidence with my music, but I knew that I was on a path to be becoming more confident and to mastering my skills as a musician. It was difficult for me and it's hard for me to talk about how difficult the attention was for me because that's the dream. Everyone thinks that's the dream. You want people to hear your music. You want to sell records. You want to get your videos on NTV or now on the internet or wherever videos are these days. And it's, and it's kind of an uh, unspoken rule that entertainers who have any, any kind of success, we're, we're not allowed to complain about our situations. We're not allowed to complain about our jobs because we're, we're considered extremely lucky because, you know, I get to play music for a living and that is, that is a wonderful, a wonderful thing. But I, a lot of everything else that had to do with my job other than the music, writing and recording specifically, because performing was always a little bit problematic for me, but every, anything other than music was really hard for me to manage. It was like a labyrinth that I would get lost in and I just I could never figure it out. Along with all of that media attention and all of that stuff, there was also a lot of sexism and a lot of just a lot of speculation about me and who I was and relating the the girlish sound of my voice to who I was who I possibly was as a person and it was all just like creepy and some of it was ugly and made me very very unhappy and uncomfortable so then I made another album for Atlantic which was called Only Everything and I was really happy with it I went in a, a, a little bit of a new direction it was more heavier guitars, more thick stacked guitars and more cryptic lyrics. I was trying to get people to kind of lay off trying to decipher who I was and just make it impossible for them to really understand some of the lyrics. Um, so they wouldn't make assumptions about me as a person. That record did not do as well as people in my orbit hoped it would. And I know that some people were disappointed like at the label and in terms of how it sold, it, it didn't really propel me to higher levels of fame and commercial success, which I guess was kind of my 
I think that was kind of my hope for it. People would kind of back off and leave me alone again so I could just take some of the pressure off. So I was kind of hoping that the machinery of the music business would kind of back off me a little bit and the press and the the label even. I wanted them to just stop trying to push me as something. Sorry, I don't know how to really how to say this. How should I say this? I think I think that with only everything I was trying to pull myself back out of the spotlight a little bit. Um, it was just a little a little bit more obscure lyrically, a little bit louder and harsher, although still really melodic. And I just wanted to stop being seen as like a pop chart, you know, um, as a waif. People called me all kinds of names like I'll turn a waif, things like that. There were a lot of pressures from everywhere. Media attention, record label demands. It was a lot and culminated with Juliana's album, God's Foot, which unfortunately never really saw the light of day and was the final straw with regards to big music industry labels. All along, all the time, I was thinking to myself, I'm gonna, I gotta quit music. I have to quit music. I hate the music business. I hate the media. I hate the record labels and what they make you do. I hate having to do interviews I hate having to do photo shoots where they pull my hair and they pluck my eyebrows and I don't know how to say no because I don't know I don't have the skills um so I was always thinking like I want to quit I want to quit the industry I want to quit the music business and but then but I can't say that out loud because people will call me ungrateful I was always conflicted and struggling and I remembered when I was a child I I was always drawing and painting and I for a long time I thought I wanted to grow up and be a cartoonist. So then after Only Everything, I made another album for Atlantic. I worked really hard on it. I produced, they let me produce it myself. And when I turned it in, they, they asked me to try to write more songs because they didn't hear a single, quote unquote. We don't hear a single. And when this happens, they generally don't tell you what they want from you. They don't tell you how... They want you to create a single. They don't tell you what they want. They'll just say whatever's popular. That Whatever's popular on the radio, then they'll say, like, we don't hear uh, losing my religion, you know. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So I wrote a bunch more songs. I recorded them. I, I turned them in. They still didn't hear a single. So I kept writing more songs, recording them, turning them in. And then at some point they decided they were just done with it, with the album, and they were not going to release it. And that was a huge crushing blow to me. It was really difficult. And at the same time, I realized, oh, this is what happens. This is what happens to people. They do well, and then they don't do as well, and then they get dropped from their label. I wasn't dropped from my label at that point, but I was in this kind of purgatory. My my album that I really loved and thought was really good was, was completed. It was in the can, but it was shelved. And I was still under contract. Um, so I I set up a meeting with the president of the label, who was a new president. He was not the guy who the guy the man who signed me was a man named Danny Goldberg and he was he was very much a support he was he was very supportive of me doing what I wanted to do and he was he was a great president for me. But then he left the label, which happens a lot in the industry. And the new guy didn't really I don't think he really got what I was trying to do like Danny did. And so I I went to – oh, and also at the time, that, um, Jewel was a new signee to Atlantic, and I could feel 
I could feel everyone at the label moving over toward Jewel and all and her potential. You know, she had I think she had a, everyone realized she had a lot more potential than I did as a commercial product. I hate to say it like that, but that's how they think, you know. Obviously she had musical skills as well. That has to be part of it. But she was more she was a more marketable commodity than I was, and it was obvious to everyone. So I set up a meeting with the new president and I went in with my manager and I begged basically begged him to let me out of my contract to just let me go and eventually that's what happened I was released from my contract um and I I I thought that I would get my album back and I would be able to shop my album around the one that I had I was calling it God's Foot the unreleased album but they held on to it they wouldn't they wouldn't let me have it back. So that was another crushing blow for me. Music needs to be shared. People need to hear it because otherwise does it really even exist? It exists for me and writing and recording music is still so important to me I've never lost that the obsession with doing that personally the writing and the recording of it is incredibly fulfilling but I still feel the need to share it with people I want people to hear it I there there is some kind of a communication that goes on when I share my music because still I do still have a lot of communication problems and social discomfort and so I'm not communicating a lot in my day-to-day life one-on-one with other people so the music is a way to share thoughts and ideas and emotions so yeah I'm all all, every step of the way in my music career I would have I I would want to (laughs) quit so uh now I found myself I got out of my Atlantic contract my album, my third album for Atlantic was shelved indefinitely. And I just kind of went back to square one and I went back to my DIY roots and I formed a plan to make an album really fast and really cheap just to prove I, I could do it without any label back, backing me. And I knew I could. So I, ma- I made this album called Bed in 1998. And it was recorded and mixed in, I think, 10 days, a week or 10 days. It was me, Todd Phillips, Mikey Welsh. Um, We just set up shop in this recording studio in Providence, Rhode Island, which had an apartment above it. And we could we just slept there and worked in the daytime. So this what happened after bed came out was that I just kept making independent records, small, cheap, independent records. And that became my life. And it's still my life. But I was all I, I was always frustrated. I felt like I just felt this sense that I was not really getting across what I wanted to get across. Every album I made, I felt like it was every album was a stepping stone to the great album that I was gonna make someday, but I was never quite achieving it. And so I never felt complete artistic or creative satisfaction. And then also, as the years went on, I felt, I started feeling like, my records are really good. Why am I not getting more 
why am I not getting more recognition for my work, just for my for my work? And that's something that I'm admitting that it's that's not a very attractive thing to admit, because an artist makes music for herself, which that my initial motivation was just a desperation to communicate things that were going on inside of me and to share share sounds that I was hearing inside of me, beautiful sounds, um, aggressive sounds, whatever they were. They were just an expression of my psyche. And But then if you do it for a long time, it becomes your living and it becomes your job. And you feel, I feel like I was doing really good work. Yeah, so I, just, I was just doing my thing and um, feeling like all the attention I got when I was on Atlantic Records, it wasn't because anything I was doing creatively was any better then because I always kind of did the same thing I recorded the same way and I to Atlantic's credit they never tried to get me to make a big fancy polished record they let me just make the records I wanted to make and my aesthetic has always been like kind of raw and unpolished a little I like to think so I just wanted to touch on the idea that um, sometimes I complain about my job and sometimes I complain about my job in my music and the bed album, for example, was all about hating the, the music business. That was my, I hate the music business record and feeling was all about how I felt that the industry just like chewed me up and spat me out and they never cared about me. They just wanted to make money off me. They exploited me. They made they made me complicit in my own exploitation, all that kind of stuff. Um, the industry was just always so fraught for me, and I never stopped writing about it, about the exploitation that goes on. But we are willing participants. We took the money. We take the advance. You know, we go into it knowing that we're part of the system. And so it's really hard to feel like it's okay to complain about it but then as the years go on and I start thinking oh everyone else is complaining about their jobs why can't I complain about my job because the longer you do it the longer I do it the more it becomes my job it's what I do it's my job and I have to do it in order to make a living like anyone else has to make a living so I feel like I artists should be allowed to complain about their jobs and we do we all do among ourselves but you're kind of not allowed to do that publicly or you are you called ungrateful At some point, I said again, I gotta quit music. It's just not, I'm not getting enough, I'm not getting enough back, I'm not getting enough feedback, positive feedback, I'm not getting recognition for my work, I'm not having any t enough tangible rewards, all that kind of stuff. I just complain about it sometimes. I'm gonna go to art school. I'm gonna, I try, I, I decided I was gonna try to quit the music business, the industry even though I was I was working in a much smaller arena. This was, okay, I was 44 and now I'm 55, so when is that? Let's, say, let's just say, let's just say it was about 10 years ago. And I had, I think I had just done, I did a couple of records through Pledge Music, this fan-funded situation. And so I completed an album that way and I had this money that I had made, some extra money, and 
then I decided I'm going to go to art school. I have enough money from this album that I just made, the fan-funded album. Thank you, fans. That I can just quit music and I'll go to art school. And I'll do something else. I, I knew that I would keep making music on my own, but I was kind of burned out. Even at the small scale that was my life at the time, I, I was still kind of burned out by just the whole selling it, you know, making it, selling it, making it, selling it. I was tired of having to sell it. And I thought, I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking I'll go to art school and I'll fall, I'll have art to fall back on. It was kind of ridiculous thinking that I could have a different life as a visual artist. And when obviously it would be another struggle, just a, a different, in a different medium. But I became kind of obsessed with the idea that I got to go to art school I was 44, and I my dad was gone at that point. He was no longer alive, but I remembered that I had a degree. I had an undergraduate degree. I was like, oh, my God, Dad, maybe get this degree so I can actually apply to graduate school, and I can get an MFA, and then I can start a new life, and MFA will take me places. I can do things with an MFA, and I can learn things. I'll learn a lot. So I applied to... MFA programs for, you know, art schools. The one program I was accepted into was at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is known as the Museum School. It's a good school, but I was I was admitted not into the MFA, not into the three-year MFA program, but the one-year post-baccalaureate program, which is full-time for one year, and it's sort of like a pre-master's degree sort of thing. And so I went. I went for a year full-time to art school thinking that when that was done, then I would apply again to MFA programs. So that was a really kind of a wonderful year for me. I just didn't make records in that year. I didn't play any shows. I had two two dogs at home, and it was just like this domestic, kind of nice, really quiet focused domestic I don't know why I'm saying domestic but it was a nice quiet focused year for me I would go to drive from my place in Cambridge across the bridge to the Fenway neighborhood where the the museum school was and then I'd take my morning classes and then I'd go back at lunchtime and feed my feed and walk my dogs and have some lunch and then I'd go back to school for the afternoon and then I'd come back again and it was it was just really nice and I felt really free not having to think about promoting anything. I didn't have to pro promote any album. I didn't have to ask any fans for money, for funding. And it was really wonderful. It was just full-time. I was taking some life drawing and painting, life painting models and drawing them. And I was doing a, um, a silkscreen workshop. I was taking some art history, more drawing classes, watercolor classes. And at the end of it, I ended up applying to a few MFA programs, or a couple, a couple of them, and I was not, I didn't get in. So that determined my future. I went back to making music, and I had this one year of art school under my belt, which I'm so glad I have. And I really feel proud that I did that at 44 years old. I was, you know, I was one of the oldest people in there. Not the oldest, but I was, I was very proud of myself for doing that. 
and I'm so glad I did it. And I'm not sure what else to say about it. I think it was just it was just really good to know that I could do something else and that I could get away from making and selling my music for a while and have a kind of rejuvenating year for myself. And uh, I think that the year of art school probably recharged my musical batteries in a way or, or re- just refreshed me in overall. With the wave of 90s nostalgia upon us, Juliana Hatfield is one of those artists that a lot of younger folks are rediscovering. When I last saw her in concert just before the pandemic, I looked around and saw a lot of folks who had lived through the 90s the first time around, but I also saw a lot of younger folks in their 20s. I asked Juliana how she feels about that. It's not just younger people discovering my music, but I'll, once in a while I'll hear from someone who, who is a little older and just discovered my music and had no idea that my music ever even existed. And then so they, so then they start going back and listening to the vast catalog that I have, and they're like, "Holy shit! There's all this cool stuff," and I, that's really great to hear too. You know, just people, any anyone discovering the music. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. They didn't need to be there in the beginning. Juliana has a new record out now, a collection of ELO covers, and will be playing some shows in October. She has an online shop where she sells some of her art. You can find that link in the show notes. Undoubtedly, there'll be more music coming too. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you to Juliana Hatfield for being so open and honest on our show today. And a quick reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, on 90s Artist, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please leave a review where you're listening. It always helps others find us. And of course, subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. <laughs>